0: It's C-Lab, the customer education lab, where we explore how to build customer education programs, experiment with new approaches, and exterminate the myths and bad advice that stop growth dead in its tracks. I'm Adam Everbescu. Dave is on vacation this week, so you've just got me today. It's National Creamsicle Day, so I hope you're enjoying a delightful summer treat, and hopefully Dave out there on vacation is doing the same. So because it's just me today, we're going to do something a little bit different. And hopefully this is something that we'll be able to come back to over time. I'd love to share some of the instructional design techniques that I use in my everyday job. And, you know, for some of us who are new to customer education or new to the world of L&D, maybe you're entering this world not necessarily knowing what the different techniques are or what the different instructional design principles that inform Any sort of adult education are. It's also really useful to be able to use some of these frameworks when you're talking with other people in your business to explain why you're taking the approach that you are. Because if you don't really have any sort of instructional design theory to lean back on, then you're often going to be in a position where you're being asked to justify your approach to the business, but you're not really able to explain why you're doing what you're doing. So again, I hope we'll be able to do a few of these over time. But what I'm going to share is some of the instructional frameworks that I use most often, how I use them, and often how I adapt them from their original forms to be relevant in not just customer education, but often in the fast-moving world of software customer education. So today... We're going to explore one of the, the most fundamental frameworks that um, I use, which is Kirkpatrick's model of evaluation. And so this is, in my opinion, one of the first ones that, that a lot of people end up using when they first get into the adult education world or in the customer education world. And so it's one of the most fundamental in a lot of ways. So, okay, what is, what is Kirkpatrick uh, and what is his model? I guess we should say, who is Kirkpatrick? Kirkpatrick is Donald Kirkpatrick, um, and he is an education researcher who was doing a lot of work on how to actually measure the effectiveness of training and of education, especially in a corporate environment. I was lucky enough to uh, actually speak at the the same conference as him years ago, um, kind of as his opening act. And um, we were speaking in a group at the company that I was working at, uh, Inspire Learning. So I was, I was just one of the team members presenting there. But it still, it felt like a little bit like, uh, yeah, I, I used to be in a band, and I, I would occasionally get to open for some of my, my heroes, and it was always such an amazing, surreal experience. And this is kind of like that, but for, um, for customer education. Anyway, uh, it was a really cool presentation. He was using a slide projector, um, you know, with the transparency slides. Um, this was 2008, I think. So, you know, it might've even been a little bit too late for people to still be using those on an everyday basis. Um, so it was really, it was just, it was wild to see. I loved it. It was amazing. Um, he's a big Packers fan. Okay. That's, that's Donald Kirkpatrick. But what is his model? So his model is basically measuring the different ways or the different levels that we can use to tell whether our training was effective. And usually you'll see it depicted as a pyramid or sometimes as an inverted pyramid. In fact, if you go uh, Google Kirkpatrick model right now, I'm sure a lot of the ways that you'll see it depicted will be as a pyramid. And I think there's a reason for that, and I'll, I'll get into that in a moment, but let's talk about what the levels are first. So level one is measuring reaction. So what is reaction? Well, assuming that you're doing some sort of training intervention, whether it's a, a live course or an online course, you really want to understand whether your students actually liked it or how they how they reacted to it. Um, so how do we measure that? Well, typically, that's the the smile sheet at the end of the course. And I know there are a lot of people who are opposed to the idea of smile sheets. They don't think it's meaningful. They don't think they're actually measuring anything important. And, you know, certainly, if you're not asking the right questions that are giving you any sort of data about learner feedback on the course, then maybe that's true. But I don't want to throw out the baby with the bathwater here. I think it is important to measure, especially in customer education, what learners even thought of your course? Um, because frankly, if they're not engaged and didn't feel like it was a good use of their time, a lot of customer education is optional, right? So if they didn't like the course, they're not going to come back. A lot of uh, the way that I see this being measured today is a little bit different from um, how Kirkpatrick might have set this up initially. It's now being combined with the idea of net promoter score or NPS, as you might hear it referred to sometime. And that's basically on a zero to 10 scale. uh, How likely are you to recommend this course to a friend or a colleague? And there's a way of measuring based on whether they're um, a detractor, which I believe is zero to seven on that scale. If they give you a seven or lower they're they're actually a detractor for the course. Um, No, I'm sorry. It's a six or below zero to six. Uh, If they give you a seven or an eight, They're considered neutral or passive. So they're probably not going to go actively promote your course to anyone, but they certainly don't have anything bad to say about it. And then a nine and a 10 is really considered a promoter. So, you know, really when you're setting your thresholds for what is a good reaction, if you're using something like a net promoter score, think about, do I really want people coming out of this course? to be raving fans and to really go recommend it. Is that the goal that I'm I'm setting? And is that realistic goal to set for myself? A lot of the time that's going to force you. If, if this is something that you're really taking seriously to think about the experience that you're creating in your course, it can't be enough just to deliver content and hope for the best. Like you really have to think about creating an experience. All right. That's level one. Level two is learning. So, Part of how I like to go up the Kirkpatrick model is asking myself the question, so what? So if level one is the reaction or satisfaction, you can say, okay, so they liked it. They they were satisfied. So what? Did they learn anything? Because you could easily game your reaction scores by um, having a bunch of fun activities in class or by... Um, you know, telling them to rate you highly as a trainer, but you know, maybe, uh, maybe you're, you're bribing them on the side, right? You can, you could get really cynical about this. Um, but you really have to ask the question, okay, so what, if they gave you a high reaction score, did they actually learn anything? Now, typically this is measured through some sort of course assessment. So a lot of courses, whether they're live or online have a test or an assessment either at the end or built throughout and this is one where a lot of the times, if you're going to do this quote unquote the right way, you have a pretest to gauge what they knew before the course and a post test to gauge what they know coming out. Now, I think it can be helpful to have a pretest, not just to get your level two measurement, but actually to get um, a good sense of, for the learner, what they know and what they don't know. Because a lot of the time for adult learners, they're going to walk into the course and they're going to say, mm, yeah, you know, uh, I, I think I know everything that I need to know already about this. Or so what? I don't care. Right? Like nobody wants to come in and, and get software training if it's not relevant to them. So a pretest could actually help um, in some cases. Expose areas that they they don't know about, or put them in in the mood to be challenged and, and to learn a little bit more. And I know people who have used this really effectively, especially with uh, products that are more highly technical. It's often helpful to create that moment of oh, I I actually don't know all of this, so now I'm going to pay more attention, and now I'm going to rise up to the challenge during these learning sessions. Anyway, that's the pre-evaluation. But almost every course has some sort of Post evaluation, right? In a, in a certification course, um, there's actually a certification assessment usually that's at the end. Um, in just a you know a e-learning that's delivered as kind of a micro learning, little short bits of information. Sometimes there's little pop quizzes to bookend each section. And so, while as the head of your learning program, you're not always going to be able to measure exactly uh, you know what each score is for each test if you're doing a bunch of them sequentially throughout the course you still want to get some gauge of you know which is the important one to measure so maybe it's the final course uh, sorry the final test at the end so then we can ask the question so what so what if they learned so what if they did well on a test did the test actually measure what they should be doing when they go back to their jobs so level three is really around behavior did they actually change their behavior after they left left the course? And this is where things start getting a little bit difficult to assess because it's not just a a survey that you could give them at the end of the course. It's not just a pre or a post-assessment that you could give them during the course. This is where you actually have to find some way to follow them back to their everyday jobs and decide whether um, they're actually changing their behavior and doing the things that you wanted them to do. Now... This sort of measurement isn't always going to be possible, but there are some ways to do it. And it's also one that even if you're not measuring it directly or exactly, it's still helpful to be thinking about these terms because what it's going to do is it's going to force you when you're designing your course to design it through the lens of not just how are they going to pass a test that I I create for the course or how much content are they going to absorb in the allotted period of time that I set up for them? Um, but really, what is it that I expect them to be able to do in their everyday jobs as a result of having undergone this learning? So in a lot of cases for our uh, for software products, which is the world I know best, the outcome of a course isn't necessarily that they know all the features of your software that's. Maybe, you know, something that's going to happen along the way, although realistically, people still aren't going to know all of them. The behavior you want to see is usually more around, are they going to incorporate using your software into their everyday job to get some sort of results for themselves? So the behavior that you need to see is typically adoption of your software, of certain features that you might have trained them to use. And if your product team uh, has some of these measurements in place already, this might be something that you can tie your measurement back to. So for instance, when I worked at Optimizely, we had a way of getting some of our key product usage indicators into our data warehouse. And we also had a way of getting the signal of whether uh, a customer went to a training or not into our data warehouse. And we were able to do an analysis to say, when uh, a user went to uh, a training, how much more likely were they to then go use these key features? Now, you'll notice that it's not necessarily being structured in a completely one-to-one ratio. So we're not necessarily going to say, hey, if uh, John Smith went to the course on August 26th, uh, did he then go use the product more or use these certain features more in the next two weeks? Certainly, that's something that you can do, but I wouldn't start there because a lot of the time that data gets really granular, really hard to manage, Um, you probably want to be looking uh, looking at this on a higher level. So not necessarily looking at this on just like a learner-by-learner-by-learner basis to start with. Look at this across your portfolio. So for an individual course or an individual learning program, um, are you seeing an uptick in product adoption for learners who have taken that course versus those who haven't. I think that's the, the easiest place to start in the spirit of progress, not perfection. All right. So they change their behavior. There's still a so what question in there, which takes us to the fourth level of evaluation. And that fourth level of evaluation, you might hear it referred to as results. You also might hear it referred to as business impact. So we have to ask the question, if they are doing the things that we train them to do, Is that creating um, some sort of positive impact for them on the job? So, this is one that you're not always going to be able to measure again. And in fact, I don't see a ton of programs, especially ones who are creating uh, training programs in a matter of weeks or even in a matter of a a couple of months. It's not one that they're always able to set up because the content's going to change, the programs are going to change. This is one that makes more sense to measure again, at kind of a a higher, more programmatic level. But it's also one where, again, if you're thinking about the business results that you're going to generate as a result of um, having this course be in place, what is it at a high level that you want that goal to be? So what is it that that course is actually helping people do? And what is that action going to do for for their business. So typically in customer education, there's a piece of that that's going to be relevant to you as the the software provider or as the the product provider, depending on whatever you're educating your customer to do. But there's also a piece of that for the customer. So for you, the company providing the training, uh, typically you're going to see some sort of business impact um, around the areas of increased uh, product adoption, which hopefully we were measuring in level three. You also might see um, business impact in terms of healthier accounts, uh, higher NPS, not just for the training, but for the account as a whole. So you're seeing higher customer satisfaction uh, when they get trained. You also might see uh, a decrease in support tickets or especially a decrease in uh, like frivolous support tickets that don't necessarily need um to be handled by your support team. It, it really just helps to have people, you know, once they take the training, okay, now I'm enabled. And now I don't necessarily need to be reaching out to your support team with all sorts of frivolous requests all the time. So these are all things that you can measure in terms of your business. But what about the customer business? So on the customer side, there are definitely uh, pieces that are going to help help them as well. So Some companies use maturity models uh, or value realization curves to measure this where you can kind of look at, okay, the more you use this product, um, the more results you're going to see for your business in terms of your productivity as uh, a company um, or maybe your employee happiness using this product. Or, you know, using the example of, I don't know, like with a marketing product, if, if it's being used effectively, you're probably going to see more leads coming in. Ultimately, if it's a sales product, you might see more deals getting closed. If it's a customer satisfaction uh, product, if it's used correctly, uh, your customers, customers will be happier, right? So if you can remember as you're designing uh, training, not just to make it about the training itself, but really to make it about the business impact that, that doing this, that, that undergoing this training is going to lead to, it helps you anchor in a couple of ways. One is it helps with that. What's in it for me piece for the customer, right? Why am I taking the time to go to this training? And the second thing that it does is it helps you as the designer of this learning to remember, okay, okay. When I'm thinking about what content to include and what, co- what content not to include, it's really tempting to say, let me just put all of my products features in there, or let me, uh, you know, focus on the things that are newest and hottest at the business. Those are things you're always going to be asked to, uh, to train on, but those might not be the things that ultimately yield the the highest impact or the, or the best business results for your customer. And so you can always tie back to that at, at that level four, um, metric to say, Hey, even if we can't measure this directly today, let's remember what the main impact of doing this training is supposed to be, and is including this feature in this training really going to help us do that. So again, even if you're not measuring it directly, it helps you become a little bit more of a consultant to your, to your business when you're getting all these requests for things that you can train on. All right. So let's recap. Level one was reaction. How did participants feel about the program? Level two is learning. So, so what? The, uh, you know, if they liked it, did they actually learn anything? Um, did they build some sort of skill, ideally, as a result of going through your program? Level three is behavior. So, so what if they learned anything? Did they actually change their behavior? And then finally, level four results. Well, so what if they changed their behavior? Were those the right behaviors to change to get to the impact that we wanted to see? Now, in customer education. Sometimes we have to adapt this model a little bit. Um, And I've alluded to some of those ways already. Because frankly, um, you know, level one, two, three, and four makes a bit of an assumption as you're setting them up that you have some control or more access to your learners to be able to measure these things. And, you know, if you're doing corporate L&D and you have a program where you're going to measure uh, behavior change over an entire year, And you know who those learners are, and you can go talk to their managers, and you can go get some really rich level three and level four data, then yeah, that all makes a lot of sense. But often the position that we're in as customer educators is we don't have a lot of access to our customers at level three and level four. So unless we can get some sort of uh, metric or as Dave might say, uh, telemetry, to tell us what customers are actually doing in our products or doing with the thing that they were educated on, then we're not necessarily always going to know um, what it is that that our customers are doing after they, they exited learning. So I think a couple things are important here. One is any proxy metric that you can use to at least help get some sort of level three or level four metric is helpful, right? Because at the end of the day, it gets you out of the conversation of talking just about what content went into your training or what the satisfaction score was or what the test score was and gets you talking to your business stakeholders about what happened in the account. So even if it's, again, just something like, uh, you know, what what did uh, product adoption look like for, uh, our customers who were trained versus those who weren't again, you're having now a more meaningful business conversation that would be aligned to your company's goals. So I think when you're looking at level three and level four, what are the behaviors and what are the business impacts that are actually going to tie to what your business is trying to do? So this is where it's really good to have conversations with your customer success leaders, your sales leaders, your marketing leaders, um, about those company level goals and how as a customer education team, you can support those goals. And now you're not just uh, training in a vacuum. because I guarantee you, if you're just measuring your satisfaction, if you're just measuring your test scores, but the business doesn't really care about that, and you're never talking about what uh, successful training is going to do for the customer, then you're not really going to have a seat at the table in terms of talking about some of these critical business decisions that need to be made. Now, sometimes people also like to add a, a level zero or a level five, and Level zero is, okay, what what comes before a reaction? What could be more basic than that? Well, it's, uh, did they show up? So, you know, this isn't necessarily a a level of evaluation, like whether they showed up to a training is not actually going to tell you much about the quality of that training or whether the training was successful, Uh, but it is a prerequisite before you even start talking about Kirkpatrick uh, if you're not getting people into your courses effectively, then you need more people to go into your courses so you can measure their reaction and their learning and their behavior and their results, um, because you're not really going to move the needle for an account of you know let let's say that your account has twenty thousand end users. Well, if only a uh, hundred of those twenty thousand show up to training, then that might actually force you back into a, a conversation about the learning design. Uh, was having a classroom training for these uh, 20,000 users the right way to go? Or do we just spend a lot of time setting up trainings that nobody showed up to when really we could have done something that was more scalable that might have worked better for that customer? Level five, on the other hand, uh, goes above what, what goes above results? Well, it's a ROI, return on investment. So this was actually an addition to the Kirkpatrick model by a guy named Jack Phillips, Um, And he has uh, an entire ROI institute and consultancy. um, And I think that he and Kirkpatrick are friendly rivals um, in that sense. But um, they're both really focused around uh, trying to measure a lot of the same things when it comes to the impact of learning. So, you know, ROI, maybe even alluding to the question that I was asking before about, hey, you did all these trainings, but nobody showed up. What impact did you have? You have to be able to go back to some low, to, you know, to some extent and say, Hey, when I looked at my business impact over there at level four, what did that actually lead to in terms of, you know, some sort of monetary value? Did I, um, deflect enough support tickets coming into my business that it's worthwhile to have created and to be running this training on, on a regular basis, um, or did I generate enough? Um, you know, if if you're a software, if you're using software that has a per-seat model, did I uh, sign up enough new people for seats on the software by running this training that it was worthwhile to have done that? And again, that it it um, was greater than the cost of having run the training in the first place and having developed it, right? Because these are kind of hard costs in some ways. Uh, well, certainly hard costs if you're launching systems to support the training, you know, if you're launching an LMS or an assessment platform, or you're, you're printing um, booklets, or you're implementing live labs, um, but then there are also the costs in terms of the time and effort to develop these courses. And especially for those of us who are in software, we know that the moment that we create a course, we're also signing up ourselves to maintain that course and to iterate on it over time. So there's a few things that we can do when we're thinking about ROI. One is that we can um, you know, really look at the impact that we're having on the customer side and on our own business efficiencies, and we can try to improve those. So we can make the courses more effective over time at generating the results that we want to see um, so that they outweigh the cost of developing the course. The other thing we can do, of course, is reduce the cost to develop the course and to to maintain the course over time. So there are certainly some techniques that we can use in terms of um, using templates to develop courses. um, Or for those of you who are doing a lot of e-learning, if you're doing things that are more like form-based authoring using a tool like Articulate Rise instead of uh, doing very custom development using something like Articulate Storyline, well, now you've cut your costs to actually develop the course. And you might not get all the functionality and all the interactivity that you wanna see, but um, you, know, you, you might that <laughs> that additional effort might not actually be that important to getting the results that you need to drive for your business. So this is something where you should always be evaluating the effectiveness of your individual courses over time. And if you are doing level one and level two measurement on each of your courses, then you should at least be able to see Oh, hey, you know, I did this one course as this really uh, custom in-person event, and I'm doing this other course as a relatively rapid dev uh, e-learning course, but they're both getting the same reaction and they're both getting the, the same um, learning at the end. People are, are showing that they've, they've learned the core concepts and, um, you know, they're both showing that they are driving behavior change for my customers well. Maybe you can start thinking about sunsetting the the live course. Maybe you don't need that live course anymore because the effort that it's taking to deliver it and presumably to schedule for it and to get customers in the room and all of that, it's significantly higher than just running it as a pure e-learning play. So there are different levels, or di- different levers, I should say. I've been talking about levels this whole time, but now I'm talking about levers. There are different levers that you can pull um, when you're thinking about getting the best ROI on your programs and on your portfolio over time. It's also why I think it's really important just to be looking at the, the attendance and the consumption and the quality ratings of your programs over time. So what we might consider that level zero and level one Um, Because if you have programs that are either consistently getting really bad scores um, or ones that are getting really low attendance, maybe it's not worth continuing to iterate on those over time. Maybe those are ones that you just want to deprecate and make some of those tough calls about, hey, I don't want this in my portfolio anymore. So really, in a nutshell, that is Kirkpatrick, and that's how uh, I use that model on a pretty regular basis in consulting with my business and about thinking about the effectiveness of the courses that I put together. Now I said earlier that I would come back to a couple of things. One is that I said I would come back to why is this a pyramid? And that'll also tie into the other thing that I said I would come back to, which is you know which of these do I realistically use of the the four to five levels or I guess six if you can't level zero, what am I really using on a, on a super consistent basis? So the reason why it's a pyramid, um, and again, it's not always a pyramid, but I think this is usually why it's depicted like that, is because reaction, level one, it's, it's at the base of the pyramid because it's the easiest to measure and it's the one that gets measured the most often. So it's taking up the most room. And I think it's also the most fundamental in that, like before you answer any of those other so what questions, it's probably not worth it to be doing a deep ROI analysis before you actually know whether people even like the course or not, Um, because that's something that's much more in your control to be able to fix. And so as you get higher and higher in the pyramid, you're typically going to be doing this analysis less often for individual courses and more at a portfolio level. Um, and that's why once you get to the top of the pyramid, it's really high value to do level four and uh, analysis and to do ROI analysis, but it's not something that you're going to be able to do for every course, every time, right? Like a lot of the times we're just moving way too fast for that. Now, to that point, which ones do I use on a, re- a regular basis? Well, I think level one and two are certainly the easiest to measure, but an interesting thing happens where Oftentimes, especially for those of us in software, we have the urge to skip level two. And I don't know if that's a bad idea. Because if we can measure the reaction of our learning, and then if we can see through some sort of product telemetry or, um, you know, some other indicator, whether they're actually likely to go do the skills that we taught them, then is it important to also measure whether they learned? Or can we skip that? Well, sometimes we can. And I see this actually fairly often where people will, maybe they'll have um, post assessments or little quizzes throughout their courses. But again, there's there's this question of, okay, well, okay, which of my five micro quizzes is the one that I wanna use as my level two metric? Or do I wanna boil them up into some sort of score? Or do I wanna have a post test at the end, but customers aren't gonna take that and they don't have time? To some people, it really just isn't that important as long as they know that their customers are going back and actually doing these skills on the job. So if you have a really good way of measuring level three, you might actually not want to place a ton of emphasis on level two. Now, does that mean that you don't want to have um, knowledge checks and quizzes? Well, no, you probably still want to have those for the learners experience because, um, adult learners often want to know, Hey, how am I doing, um, you know, is, did, did I actually learn the skill or, or didn't I, like, did I, did I master this? Um, and so you want to have those there from a learning perspective, but from a measurement perspective, they might not be as important. And I know some people are going to be shaking their heads at me and saying, well, no, you can't measure level three until you measure level two. And I, again, I think there are merits to doing it, but it's one that I, I see getting skipped and, and one that, especially when I've had better, um, product telemetry to look at or better indicators of whether my customers are actually going and doing the job, it's one that I don't place as much emphasis on either. Um, So there's that. And then, you know, there are ways also for those who can't really measure level three very well to at least get a good proxy metric for that. So for instance, when you're measuring level one, and you're doing your post course evaluation, one question that I like to ask a lot of the time that um, even though it's not actually a level three measurement, at least points at level three, is I'll ask a question that is something like, um, I am likely to use these skills on my everyday job, or I am likely to use the skills that I learned in this course um, in my everyday job. And you, know, you can have uh, not likely, somewhat likely, completely likely. So at least you're getting the learner's intent to go do these things after the course. So you're not necessarily measuring, hey, are they actually doing it, but you are at least getting a good proxy of do they feel empowered to do it and are they likely to go do these things. And I think that's also something worth reporting on um, and worth measuring and tracking over time because you know it's one thing to say, did I like the course, but it's another thing entirely to say, okay, you know, I like the course, but now I'm actually going to go change my behavior as a result of this course. And oftentimes in the business of learning, we are not just in the the business of teaching skills in a vacuum. We are in the business of driving action for our customers. So that's a really good question. I think that kind of points at uh, whether they're actually likely to drive action or not. That's Kirkpatrick in a nutshell, um, including some of the ways that uh, I've seen it modified, some of the ways that I use it um, on the job. And if this was something that was useful to you, I imagine some of you already know Kirkpatrick really well and could describe it uh, just as well as I could, if not better. Um, But for those of you who don't have as much instructional design theory in your tool belt, if this is something that was helpful for you, uh, please let me know. And hopefully we'll do more of these in the future. Maybe we'll we'll do some together with uh, me and Dave. But if not, I'm happy to do more episodes like this in the future. If you want to learn more, we have a podcast website at customer.education. That's HTTPS colon slash slash customer.education, where you can find all of our material. I am at Avromescu on Twitter. Dave is at Dave Darrington. Special thanks to Alan Coda for our theme music. And if this helped you out, you can help us out by subscribing in your podcatcher of choice, uh, Apple Podcasts or Stitcher or whatever you use. Um, and please leave us a review on Apple Podcasts uh, or as you might know, at the iTunes store. Those things really help expose our podcast and, and help us find the others. So to our audience, thanks for joining. Go out and educate, experiment, and find your people. Thanks for listening.